Here, preschoolers may be dismissed for children's church. You can just head to the rear door of the sanctuary, and you'll be guided that way. We started a new series last week in one of the, the latter letters in the New Testament, First Peter, written by the Apostle Peter, and um, we're picking back up this morning with verse 3. So if you don't have a Bible, that the text is, is there in the order of worship. First Peter, verse 3, and we'll be reading through verse 9. Um, a book that came out, I guess three, it's hard to believe, three springs ago, I believe, it's a book by a pastor in our denomination uh, named Tim Keller. And Tim Keller, fairly well-known, seems to be more and more well-known pastor in New York City. He's the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church there and has become a, more and more of a prolific author, see more and more of his books. Well, this first book is called... Um, what is it called? What's the one about? Reason for God. I went blank as a board. Yeah, Brian... Do your homework before you stand up in front of people. Everything else I know cold, but uh, went a little blank there. The Reason for God. And it's, uh, it's, it really, I would commend this book to you, The Reason for God by Tim Keller, as a book that if you are yourself skeptical or someone that you love or care about is skeptical but maybe open to reading about these things, uh, it's, a, it's a substantive book. It's not a book you fly through, but it's a great resource to put in someone's hands who's open to the questions or is asking the questions. And one thing I liked that Tim Keller did, uh, sometimes Christian authors, when they, if, if they do book release uh, tours or endeavors, it's, it's very much in kind of a, a Christian subculture world. So maybe they'll speak at Christian bookstores or at churches or Christian conferences. But one thing I really liked that he did was he, he really took it to the streets. And uh, so just, you know, he did book tours in Barnes & Noble and Borders and places like that. But he also went uh, onto university campuses because where are you going to find a lot of skepticism, a lot of it kind of highbrow skepticism? And he wasn't just going to little Christian colleges. He was going to places like UCAL Berkeley and Stanford and NYU and places like that. But one of the most interesting places where he, he gave uh, a talk related to his book was at the Google headquarters in California. And they have a program called Authors at Google, and they'll, they'll uh, just kind of the employee enrichment, and they'll bring in authors. And they said it was one of the largest crowds they had ever had when Tim Keller came to speak about this book and about belief in God. Now, you can watch this on YouTube. If you, if you look up on YouTube, Tim Keller Google, it's a long video for YouTube. It's like an hour long, so, you know, go get some coffee and then, and then come back. But at the very end of it, he did Q&A with the people who came. And there's this interesting moment at the very end of the video. Some of the questions are, are friendly. Some are a little bit, you know, reflecting back on, on what he's saying. But the very last person that asked a question walked up. And I guess, I don't know that I would even say this. It was kind of like humorous blasphemy. This guy walks up. He's in a purple T-shirt. And he says, okay, I have a religion and I'm God. And uh, in my religion, if you don't bow down and worship me and devote your life to me, he's saying it with a smile, he's being facetious. If you don't bow down and worship me, you go to a hell that's even worse than the hell in the Bible. And he says it's full of snakes and in-laws and you can't believe how bad it is. And those are his words, not mine. And 
Uh, so, you know, what, who's to say that that's, that's not valid? <clears throat> and, uh, and Tim Keller is extremely bright, but, and it's funny, his delivery is very calm. And he, this is how the whole hour-long session ended. He said, well, I would say that if you had spent your life saying some of the most compelling things ever said, and then you, uh, you died, and then you rose again, then people might need to look into it. And so, so then, you know, kind of give as good as you get. The guy responded and said, well, I did die and rise again, but I rose again in Antarctica and no one saw it. And Keller said, we see, that's something Christians would never say. And he pointed him to a passage in 1 Corinthians. This is one of Paul's letters. He said, this was written, scholars would say, about 15 years after the death of Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, that when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to, you know, this person over here and these people over here. And then he says, at, on one occasion, he appeared to 500 people at one time. There was this space of days between his resurrection and his ascension where he just showed up. And on one occasion, 500 people saw him at one time. And then Paul says this, many of whom are still alive. Okay, and what is Paul saying when he writes that? If you want to corroborate with eyewitnesses, you can go do it right now. And with the Roman road system, living in Corinth, that would be completely plausible. And it, it was just amazing to me. Here's what was amazing to me. The resurrection sometimes just seems like such a churchy, Easter service-y, different thing than like Google and they're in the Google headquarters, and this guy, I mean, blasphemous, but it was, you know, it wasn't malicious in tone. But he just sort of throws out, how do we know that anything is valid? And the answer to the whole session was, he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead, and the accounts of it are written within the, the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. If that's not true, believe whatever you want. Start your own religion and be the, be the you know, savior in it. Be worshipped. If he did rise from the dead, you must look at everything he said. Now, something that we established last week... I actually am about to read the passage. Something that we established last week is that this is a letter written to people who are suffering. And this is still the early part of the letter. And I want you to note what Peter writes. He doesn't begin the letter by saying, even though you're suffering... I want you to strive to have joy. That might seem like a bible thing to say. You know, even though you're going through a really suffering hard time, I want you to dig deep and try to have, you know, good Jesus joy. He says to people who are going through intense suffering, you have intense joy. And I know why. Now, we of all people should be curious, uh, you know, what is their secret? How do people who are going through felt physical suffering not strive for joy? How are they feeling as if they are soaking in actual joy? The experience of it as they're suffering. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we ask that we who either have suffered or are in it or will face it, that we would, from your word, be shown something by you that is real and strong that could give us joy not only in good circumstances, but even in the height of pain. We pray that you would give us something that strong for your glory and for our good. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Question. What does lack of hope look like in the church? Uh, What does hopelessness look like in a room like this? In my limited pastoral experience, let let me tell you what I would say is garden variety hopelessness. Now, sometimes there might be great moments... Uh, of hopelessness, of just ex- of despair because of a tragedy, a loss, great pain. But what I watch <clears throat> and what I have tasted of hopelessness that's just kind of average and normal would be in a room like this, would be a parent who is, let's say, 30s, maybe coming up on 40s, who, let's say, has children and also has aging parents. And after this perhaps great wave of joy that came with the fact that, wow, you know, I'm I'm a parent, I, I have a child, or maybe we have children, that it seems that every next stage is more difficult. And so, you know, woo, if we can just kind of get through those first... Two months of a newborn, you know, kind of like the fog of combat, you know, and, and we get through that, and, and uh, it's, it's, it's going to be okay. But then there's a hard thing on the other side of it. And then they begin to speak, and then they begin to move around, and then they begin to reason, and then they begin to challenge. And the challenges become more sophisticated. And all the while, as they're on that track, aging parents, if they're still alive, are on the track of deterioration. And this, uh, this 30 or something, 30 something, 40 something, is, is also in the midst of all this, 
is they're, is they're feeling very tired. Uh, they're, they're feeling tired at the thought of, I, I thought I signed up for a sprint and, and I signed up for, a, somebody signed me up for a marathon. Somebody signed me up for the Ironman. And I had not trained for the Ironman. And they're watching their peers and they're, they're watching a lot of their peers' lives come off the rails. That, you know, the happy couple from high school or college is getting a divorce. Um, the, the guy that was so fun has taken his life. And then, against the backdrop of that, they're watching the news. And there's just so many sad things. And now you sort of feel the weight of it. When you're a kid and you watch the news and, you know, there's some sad thing on the news, you just kind of walk away from it and go play. But now they, they're feeling the import of it more. Like, here's a little news item that I learned about this past week. A week ago in Bangladesh, a 14-year-old girl who was raped uh, because she was raped in the eyes of the law. She had engaged in uh, inappropriate conduct, and so she was flogged to death. Who knows how many things like that happen every day? That's just one that happened last week. That happened. And so, you know, the looking at one's own life and the looking at one's peers and the looking at how things don't seem to be getting easier, they get harder and it weighs on me more. And the world is so troubled and it's the feeling of, you know, there's just no way to rein all this in. You cannot get enough counseling. You cannot get enough medication, whether it's legal or your own self-medicating. You cannot get enough to make this go away, and it's there. And that feeling that it's always going to be there and nobody can do anything about it, that's hopelessness. And Peter is writing people who are, you know, they are taking it on the chin for loving Jesus. And there's no prospect of it getting better anytime soon because it's not like, well, give it five years and just this whole part of the world will be Christian. There's no promise that's going to happen. And Peter writes them and says, you, I know, I know about you, bless God because people like you and me, we have been born again into a what? Into a living hope. And when he says that, it is the least platitude. When I say platitude, I mean like kind of, you know, sort of pie in the sky, religious, you know, think nice thoughts, be positive things. That is the opposite of what he is saying. He is giving them strong encouragement as they're hurting to say, you have been born again to a living hope. If, If you get martyred, you can have it walking up to the sword or to the wild animal or to where they're going to drown you. You can have it then, and you do. And again, I would say, we of all people should want to know, how do I have that? And here's the thing. You know, I just described the life of the, you know, the 30 or 40-something that might be in this room. That's not to leave out the 20-something or the 60-something, but just as a cross-section. Our lives, compared to the person who's going through physical persecution in Asia Minor, our lives are awesome. Our lives are great, and yet we can feel that kind of despair. 
How could Peter write people hurting so much and say, God the Father has great mercy? I mean, what if your business got burned down because you love Jesus? Would you feel that, oh, God is great in mercy? And Peter says, that's exactly what he is. How does that work? Here's what I want to look at. The mercy of God, the mercy of God the Father, past, present, future. Great mercy in the past, present, future. I'm not going to do it in that order. Let's start with the future. How do you see the great mercy of God the Father in the future? A couple of things. First off, verse verse 4. What does he say? All right, you recipients of this letter, you've been born again to a living hope, but born again to something, to, to something else, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now, this thing about inheritance goes all the way back to the Old Testament. When God rescued His people from Egypt, and it's so crummy being in slavery, in poverty, in oppression, what was one of the great things that was going to come when they went through the wilderness and crossed the Jordan River and made it into the promised land, is that finally you would come into your inheritance. But here's an amazing thing. One of the tribes, it was the clergy, the Levites, to them God said, when you get into the promised land, you do not receive an inheritance. You do not receive a portion. And multiple times He gives the reason. What's the reason? You do not get an inheritance because... I am your inheritance. I am your portion. And it's as if Peter is taking that, instead of confining it to the Levites or the Israelites, he's now expanding it to all God's people, Jewish or Gentile, and saying this. It's almost... Now, Peter wouldn't have been thinking this. Do you remember like high school Friday night football games when... Peter would definitely not have been thinking of that. Do you remember when, like, the home team would get behind a big paper banner and they're about to to rush out, you know, like the band's going to start. And you remember how, like, people would start poking holes through the paper? Like, you can't see the football players, but you just see, like, and it just, like, they are ready to come at you. And Peter is using that kind of urgency to say, your inheritance is right there. And, I mean, even as I thought about this this week, it it struck me what he's saying is that it's not that one day you're going to get to heaven and and God is going to go, okay, now, what do we do with your room? You know, what what color scheme do we use just, you know, that complies with your own individual taste? It's saying the the rooms are there right now. The estates and the pleasures the mountains and the grass and one another, but most importantly, He is there right now, guarding it for us. And Peter, uh, because there aren't adjectives to describe it, he has to use negative adjectives. Think about this. Just yesterday, I was doing premarital counseling with a couple, and they shared with me something that I experienced when I was engaged, and almost every couple that I do premarital counseling with talks about this, and this is very aggravating, is when you have a couple who are, you know, they're thrilled to be engaged, they're moving toward marriage, and then people take it upon themselves to debunk their happiness. That people take it upon themselves, you know, to kind of give the, well, it's kind of, you know, wine and roses now, but just wait. You know, 
Wait till they track dirt on the bathroom doormat, you know, and then, and then see how you feel. Okay, first off, don't ever do that. All right? d- d- don't, don't do that. But, you know, as I was thinking about it, when, when people are cynical, cynics typically are on to something, right? I mean, cynics are on to something that's true. Hey, you think that's beautiful? Don't get too attached to it. It'll fade. Or do you think that's pristine and wonderful? Something's going to defile it. And in a fallen world, that's true. But Peter says... There's something, it's just waiting behind the banner for you. It's ready for you to be there. And he has to use negative words. It's, it's, uh, it's imperishable. It's undefiled. It can't ever fade. And that's real. And what else does he say? Verses 5 and 9. He says, who by God's power, this is, this is in the future, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Then look down at verse 9. Obtaining the outcome. What's the outcome? It's how the story ends. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Does that mean we're not saved yet? If you're in Christ, you are saved. But at His return, either after our death or if we're around when He returns, and I have no idea when that's going to be, is the fullness of salvation... How saved will we be? This could be three separate sermons. This could be 20 separate sermons. But just suffice it to say this. We will be so saved that we can do what it says in verse 8. Look in verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him, present. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with... Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, y'all. I I pointed to the wrong verse. Verse uh, 7 This is the future. It says that at the end, when he's tested the genuineness of your faith, that those who stand before him may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What would it be like to see Jesus and with all your body and all your soul to be able to say, you you let me be sick and I praise you with all of my being. I honor you for the unemployment. I, I glorify you for the bankruptcy. I praise your holy name for the difficult child. To be able, with all our being, body and soul, to say, everything that you brought into my life and the way that you ruled over me was perfect. And all glory and honor and blessing be to you forever and ever. To be able to do that and feel it in your bones would be to be utterly saved, completely saved. Now, we are completely saved, but that would be the experience of it. And Peter says that will happen. That Christians that struggled and struggled with pain and why questions and Jesus has all this power, why doesn't He do something about it, will stand before Him and say, A plus plan. Perfect. You rule it perfectly. I love you and I will love you forever. That is the future. Now, you can hear that and go, admittedly, that sounds great, but how do I know that? 
How do I know that's not just church talk, pipe dream? How do I know that's real? Verse 3 is the bedrock. This is mercy in the future, I mean, in the past. God's great mercy in the past is what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is where I feel like I need to give an Easter sermon in like a minute and a half. Um, Think about it this way. We are accustomed to this thing called the resurrection. We celebrate it at Easter and it comes up at other times. But it's everything. And the reason that the Sabbath wasn't yesterday is because we're celebrating this. Um, to Greeks or to people influenced by Greek thought in that day, coming along with a message saying, our God took on flesh and when He was killed and He rose from the dead, He remained both God and man in flesh. That would have been odious to the Greeks. The the, the Greek hope was that when you die, this cage of your soul called your body is shed and your soul flies freely like a bird out of its cage. You're telling me that your God took on the cage and died and rose and retained the cage? Odious message. To Jewish audiences... They did believe that there was going to be a resurrection, but it was going to be all over the world. If you came along to a Jewish audience, and this is what the apostles did and said, the Messiah, God and man, He came and He died and He rose from the dead. He's been resurrected. Their question would have been, how could that be? The, the world is not the new world yet. It's not the new heavens and the new earth. The, you know, the, the lion and the lamb don't lie down together. No one is raised from the dead until the very end. You don't have an individual resurrection. And the apostles said, yes, you do. And the fact that he did says that that future resurrection, you can take it to the bank. You can take it to the bank. How to put it, uh, in John chapter 6, this is early in Jesus' ministry, He's speaking to a, a, a large crowd, and not once, not twice, not three times, but four times, He says things like, if you believe in Me, if the Father allows you to believe in Me, if you eat My flesh and drink My blood, I'll raise you up at the last day. He says it four... Do you think it might be important to him when he says it four times? I will raise you up at the last day. And no one there knows that he's going to be killed and rise from the dead. But when they remembered that day that he said that four times, what did that drive home? You know what? He can. Death could not hold him. And if it couldn't hold him, if he says, I'm going to come raise you, As we've said before, the the happening place downtown, one of these days, will not be Main Street when Jesus returns. It'll be the cemeteries where literally people rise from the dead, some to judgment, which will be a second death, 
but his people to life. They'll only die once. And that death at that point is ancient history. And the question is, is that real or not? Because again, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, if there weren't eyewitnesses, if it didn't change the world, make up your own religion. Do the cafeteria spirituality thing. If he did rise from the dead, it not only means we've got to consider everything he said, but it means that I can be unemployed. I can, I can find a lump. I can have a child that I do not know what to do with. I can be so lonely that I can hardly smile anymore. And I can know that that inheritance will come. It is waiting for me. And the first fruits of it is that he rose and stepped into his inheritance. And one day, I will be an heir with him. And it won't be fiction. It won't be religious talk. It will be time and space. And I will be so saved that whatever crummy thing I have been through or am going through, I will be able to stand before him and say, You are wisdom. You are love. You are the king I always wanted. What about mercy in the present? I mean, if you buy into all that, what does it give you in the present, even while you're suffering? You know, they're going through some hard things. Did you notice what it said in verse... I'm doubting my ability to find right verses now. Verse 7 talks about the tested genuineness of your faith. He talks about trials that grieve you, suffering that grieves you. They're in the midst of that. But what do they have in the present? A couple of things. One is, verse 3, living hope. Living hope. How does that sound to you? Does that sound like religious talk? I think to me it does sometimes. Living hope. You know what he's saying? Peter is saying this. If your hope is in your children, your joy will only be as well as your children are doing. You'll only be as joyful as your unhappiest child. There's a bleak thought. And perish the thought, if something happens to your child one day, then your joy and your hope will die. But if the object of your hope can't die, then you have a living hope. If your hope is to be squared away with your savings and your emergency fund and your 401k, then your joy and your hope will always be contingent on how they're doing. This has been a bad few years for you. And Peter might say, you know what? Good. Because maybe we're going to burn some dross away and we're going to find out the gold that's there. And the object of the gold, the object of the faith is not, well, God's going to help my 401k later. He's faithful in that way. Say, no, 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 no. Is your hope and your joy in something you have or is it in Him? Because if it is in Him, you can be sent into poverty 
and your hope will live. Living hope. He also says this, verse 8. They're living in Asia Minor. They're not close to Jerusalem, at least by their means of transportation. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I don't know how to comment on that verse. I do not know how to comment on that verse. To say to people who are going through such hard things, not, I wish you had to say, you possess right now a joy that you can't put into words. It's inexplicable and it's inexpressible and it fills you, this is a strong biblical term, with glory, the weightiness of God. You know, if living in South Carolina, or if you know South Carolina history, a word you'll bump into sometimes is Huguenot. You know who the Huguenots were? The Huguenots were French Protestants. Specifically, they were French Calvinists. The Huguenots would like what we teach and preach at Downtown Pros. Um, the reason that some Huguenots ended up in the Carolinas is because they fell under intense persecution in France when the monarchy tried to crush the fruit of the Reformation. Um, pastors were executed. Women were imprisoned for life, Huguenot women. Men frequently became galley slaves. So they were sent to work in these awful sort of undersides of ships just rowing to death. And in the south of France, there's a museum called the Museum of the Desert, and there's a display about the Huguenot, because it's part of French history, there's a display of the, the Huguenot galley slaves. And in this display, it looks like what that part of a ship might look like where you row in the hull. And there's an oar that one of these Huguenot galley slaves used. And there's an inscription of what one of the slaves left. And it simply says in French, <clears throat> My chains are the chains of Christ's love. And I would be the first to say to you, you know, a healthy guy with a pretty great life in his blazer without a lot of felt suffering standing before you talking about inexpressible joy in the midst of suffering that you can have. I, I, I may not have a lot of street cred with you, but would you admit that that man did? Would you admit that, there is, that if there's any place platitudes would not fly, it is in a place where you are chained for the rest of your life, possibly sitting in your own filth. And in that moment to say, these chains are the tokens of His love. That is part of our state history. So let me end with this. What if you're here and you're not a Christian and you just would say, I, I mean, in some ways that's appealing, but I, I don't connect with that at all. What do I do? I would say to you, you can't do anything. And that's why it's so important what Peter says in verse 3. This is almost the beginning of his letter. He blesses God that Christians have been what? They've been born 
again. How did you get born physically? What was your decision making in being born physically? Zero. Utterly the work of others. That is a spiritual reality that to be born again is something God would have to do. But God is so good that if you're sitting here this morning and you know that you're not born again, you know that you don't have this living hope, you know that you don't have inexpressible joy, you can say to God what He already knows. He knows everything we say or don't say. But you can say to Him, I think I need the new birth. Would you give it to me? And then wait. Don't stop asking. Don't give Him rest. But don't think He'll be on your timetable. He is good. Only He can give the new birth. But what if you're here and you are a Christian and you think you have had this new birth and you do believe these things, but the reality is the job thing or the singleness thing or the whatever, family problems, it is so overshadowing the stuff you're talking about. I don't feel, I don't feel joy that I can't express. I feel anger that I can't express. I would say this. Before Sunday school this morning, the children, we sang a song together, and it's, it goes like this. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in my ear, the sweetest name on earth. Okay, then the chorus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. But the last sentence is the theological point here. Because He first loved me. And you, you or I, I speak from experience, trying to whoop ourselves up that I'm going to love Him more. That's not the answer. But the answer is to go to Christ and look at how He loves sinners. To look at how He loves people indifferent to His great love. To be scourged for people who are jaded about His scourging. That has the power to melt our hearts. That is the hope that won't go away. Whatever you are going through, if you are in Christ, that cannot die. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as a room full of men and women and children, we would pray that either we need to believe or we do believe that we need help in our unbelief. Help us, O God. Help us, O Father. May we not look to family or friends, exercise or body, pleasure or rest or income, but to the fullness of your very divine being in Christ the Son.
and find joy that does not fade. Enable us to rightly await the inheritance of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.